Welcome to the latest podcast from The Lancet. It's October the 12th and I'm Francesca Toey. Ahead of World Palliative Care Day on October the 14th, The Lancet is publishing their commission titled Alleviating the Access Abyss in Palliative Care and Pain Relief, an Imperative of Universal Health Coverage. And joining us today to talk about their piece are the first author, Professor Felicia Now, and also Professor Julio Frank. Welcome both. Please can you introduce yourselves? So Felicia Marie Nall, I'm the director of the University of Miami's Miami Institute for Advanced Study of the Americas, and I'm a professor at our Miller School of Medicine, as well as a Mexican Research and Mexican Health Foundation, and the president of an NGO in Mexico called Tomate Lopez. And I'm Julio Frank. I'm currently the president of the University of Miami, and uh, I've served previously as dean of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and prior to that as Minister of Health of Mexico from 2000 to 2006. Thanks again for joining us. So first, can you please give some background as to how this commission began? This began with um, our work on cancer uh, that started with my own diagnosis with breast cancer um, in 2007 and then led into work on breast cancer in Mexico, breast cancer globally, and then eventually Uh, the global cancer divide. And one of the areas that we quickly identified with our colleagues as of great priority and about which so much could be done was precisely the global pain divide. Um, The inequity and magnitude and solvability of the problem of access to, to pain relief and then to palliative care. So this came out of that work on cancer Um, but also the strong feeling of ourselves and all the other co-authors and commissioners that this is one of the largest, most inequitable, and most solvable problems that we see in global health, about which very little had been um, written and published. The work that Felicia is describing started in, in Mexico, and that led to a lot of the work, initial work, on cancer in developing countries which led to the discovery of this totally neglected aspect, which was the the access to palliative care and pain control in developing countries. The commission is split into three broad sections, and we'll be touching on each of those throughout the podcast. And in the first section, you're focusing on the burden of serious health-related suffering worldwide, and you capture this crisis with 45% of the deaths in 2015 all having experienced serious health-related suffering, which is a huge number. Can you discuss the need for palliative care and this unequal availability of services worldwide? We identified that almost 45% of deaths in the world are associated with a need for palliative care and pain relief, which is a huge number. And depending on how, you, how we can measure access, we have limited data um, other than on pain relief, but depending how we measure that between um, 70 and 85% would be without access. Um, our number that is incredibly impressive as well is that more than 61 million people per year, including those 25.5 who, who die with serious health-related suffering, um, require palliative care and pain relief. And that 61 million includes the other 35 million um, who have life-threatening or life-limiting illnesses or diseases, or who will die at the end of life, but their end of life is longer than a year. And that gives us 
the total for serious health-related suffering of just over 61 million. That translates into a conservative estimate of 6 billion days a year of serious suffering. And again, we know that the vast majority of that suffering is not attended to through palliative care and pain relief, particularly in low- and middle-income countries, although not only in low- and middle-income countries, as we identified need in several higher-income countries around the world as well. I'd like to stress the innovation here of introducing a, a new metric of a highly neglected aspect uh, of, of uh, health need, which is this concept of uh, severe health-related suffering. And the Commission really had a very profound debate about the, the, this concept. I, I think it's a huge innovation. It brings uh, light, it brings to light a, um, a negative health outcome which really had not been uh, brought to, to, to the center stage of attention. Uh, but it's, it's this extreme levels of health-related suffering. There's obviously suffering that's not health-related, but this is, was very, very well-crafted to focus on that. And, um, and when we include this metric, you get some of the staggering numbers that we just heard from Felicia. Existing measures really focus on very key parts of, um, of global health, which is death, the burden of mortality and morbidity, and those are enormous moves forward. But a lot of pain and suffering does not end up in death and does not necessarily make you more productive or live longer. The alleviation of suffering is another kind of measure that has a different value scheme that isn't necessarily time. And we begin to approach uh, that new metric that we believe needs to be developed, where new data, um, focus groups around how people, families, and caregivers value the alleviation of suffering is going to be really key to sort of adding that, that piece onto existing metrics we call it in the paper, Suffering Adjusted Life Years, or SALIs. That's the first attempt what we believe should be a major area of research in the future to complement SALIs and DALIs. The framework is different than a more technocratic approach to priority setting, and this is really a human rights framework. If we agree that alleviating preventable, avoidable suffering has an intrinsic valuation and that every human being should have the right to a dignified death free from avoidable suffering. And in addition to suffering that happens at the end of life, which is an important part of this report, there is avoidable suffering from pain throughout the entire life course. And these have often escaped our narrower um, radar screens because we have either adopted a more utilitarian frameworks for a priority setting, or had focused on the more conventional uh, metrics of premature mortality, uh, disability, uh, morbidity. I think this uh, comes to complement our repertoire of uh, metrics in a more comprehensive way. It, it adds an important dimension to what, what we already have in terms of disability-adjusted life years and other such metrics. It, it, it adds this more rights-based approach to prevent uh, avoidable extreme suffering. Thank you. And that point of being able to alleviate suffering with such inexpensive treatments is really emphasised with the quotes that you have from people around the world, such as some doctors 
and their experience with patients. I know it's unusual in The Lancet to allow testimonials to be included in certainly the number that we included. And that was really very amazing because um, allowing us to do that really brings in a little bit of the human voice that's almost always lost when you're only able to give the data-oriented argument. It does bring in, like you said, that human perspective. Moving into section two of your commission, you've created this essential package of palliative care and pain relief health services that you propose to help alleviate the burden of suffering. Can you please outline the main points from this package? The package has three main components. First, essential medicines. And the most essential of the essential medicine is immediate off-patent oral morphine and injectable morphine. But the other medicines are also essential because we look at a group of symptoms that are associated with serious health-related suffering, which include pain, but also go as far as severe anxiety, uh, dementia, depression, wounds, dyspnea, etc. The second block in the essential package is very basic equipment. And I highlight basic, we thought carefully even about frugal innovation in identifying what could go into this very essential package. So for example, adult diapers, which in fact can be extremely expensive. And we thought through with our commissioners, our expert clinicians, um, how to do a home-based option, which is really plastic and cotton. And even to think about whether or not that would work in countries like Rwanda, where plastic bags are not allowed. We really thought very carefully about frugal innovation around equipment. So when we use the equipment word, it sounds much bigger than it is. It's really some very basics. And those basics are also, we think, extremely important to alleviate some of the social aspects of serious health-related suffering. Um, Having a simple mattress that relieves uh, pressure sores is also, of course, very important to dignity in the home. And then the third component of the essential package are the human resources. And while we highlight the need in every country to have palliative care and pain as specialties and to have as recognized specialties in the country, we focus on the primary resources, the physicians, the nurses, the health promoters, even the social workers, and in some cases, um, the clergy that are key to being able to make an essential package get to where it can be most effective, which is often to patients in their homes or to primary clinics nearby to where they and their families are living. And so those are the three parts, the essential medicines, the frugal innovation equipment, and the core human resources. And then we have a series of training recommendations to make sure that those human resources match the other inputs in the package. One interesting aspect of this commission was uh, that it, it was a very interesting mix of people coming from the field of global health, like myself and other of the commissioners, with clinicians who, who devoted their clinical work to palliative care. And so it was very enriching and I think creative to have you know people coming from the global health, but really with no deep knowledge of uh, palliation or pain control, but with instruments like essential packages. We've we've been talking about essential packages of interventions, well, you know, uh, for at least a quarter of a century. Um, 
certainly with the you know the world development report in 1993 already proposed some essential packages of of interventions but dealing mostly with basic prevention and 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 management of of diseases uh, and treatment uh, we don't think this had ever been applied in, in a rigorous way to uh, elements of, of, of palliative care. And I, I think that putting together the clinicians who are experts in this field with the global health uh, people coming from the health systems field, health economics, made for a very, very uh, rich report because there were a lot of synergies among those two groups, which really had not interacted that much in the past. There had been, of course, points of contact, but I think this was the first commission that brought those two communities together. And, and the essential package, I think, recognize, uh, recognizes and reflects the uh, contributions of both of those groups and how well um, the, the writing team led by, by Felicia Noll was able to put those two perspectives together in a very coherent formulation. You know, I also wanted to pick up on, on what Julia just mentioned about this sort of fusion of minds of global health system and national health system leaders and policymakers with um, clinician experts in palliative care and pain relief. And this is a diagonal approach to thinking through problems. I think we, we pioneered that with the work on cancer um, several years ago that we did from the Harvard Global Equity Initiative. And I think that's been incredibly helpful and, and successful. And this idea of the diagonal approach actually comes into the work on health systems that I know we're going to talk about a little bit later in the podcast. But it is really a very innovative idea that was developed by Julio and uh, another colleague um, from Mexico, Jaime Sepulveda. And it's helped us tremendously in thinking through, in innovative ways, challenges like global access to pain control and palliative care. It was actually developed originally by Jaime Sepulveda, but it is a powerful idea, and the diagonal is the synthesis between vertical approaches, which in this case would be the whole idea of palliative care, and horizontal approaches, which look to strengthen health systems in a broad sense. And this report puts the two together, hence the diagonal, which is the synthesis between the vertical and the horizontal approaches. So part of your essential package is pain relief and one of the types of treatments you can use are morphine-equivalent opioids. And again, in your commission, you do show the difference between the global distribution of these medications uh, in figure one with the map of the world and also on figure nine with the pie chart of the met and unmet need for these types of drugs. Can you discuss this uneven distribution? Why is it so skewed and some of the barriers to access and some of the concerns? I wanted to just bridge between the essential package, um, the specifics of pain relief, and just also saying that we've learned four aspects to palliative care-related suffering, which is the physical, the psychological, the spiritual, and the social. And while our work focused on health-related suffering and the physical and psychological suffering, we also are very cognizant of, of the importance of thinking about the spiritual and the social as well, and that that's an aspect of palliative care that's, that's very important to integrate to, to make the interventions that are more physical and psychological health-related work the way they should. So we're understanding that immediate oral 
And we keep focusing on this because it's the immediately released, off-patent, inexpensive kind of morphine that's really very effective. Um, oral morphine and injectable morphine is the most essential of essential pain medications and the most essential of essential of the package because you really can't do palliative care if you don't even have the basic morphine. So the access to morphine, in fact, is a tracer in our study, in part because those are the only global data that we know are available, um, some of the interventions that constitute palliative care. That's from the International Narcotics Control Board, the INCB, and it tells you the way we've looked at it, we call DOME, distributed oral morphine equivalent. So it takes all opiate analgesics that are distributed or available in the world, country by country, and gives it a common denominator, which is also the most inexpensive, which is this immediate release oral or injectable morphine in milligrams. And we talk about distributed because these are the medicines that are available in countries. They are part of, of a, a larger picture of opioid analgesics. Now, in terms of the inequity of the distribution, there are just under 300 metric tons of morphine equivalent in the world. And less than 4% of that is in low and middle income countries. And 0.01% metric tons are in low-income countries. And what that means is that of the 172-odd countries for which we have data, more than 100 can satisfy less than 30% of only palliative care need. The need for pain relief we primarily looked at was palliative care, but there are other reasons why pain relief is required. Post-surgical, just as one example. When you look at the benchmark, which is what is in those pie chart figures in figure nine, the benchmark is a much larger and I would say perhaps more uh, reasonable estimate of both what is required in a country and what's required by people to alleviate suffering associated with pain and dyspnea that's palliative care, but also related to other medical needs. We used as a benchmark there what is available on average in Western European countries, because we know that there are a set of countries, Germany, the UK, Norway, and a few others, that are really achieving good access without excess. And as our map shows, it's about eight times their weighted palliative care need, and that is enough to give appropriate access for all kinds of medical needs. So that becomes our global benchmark. When you look at access in countries, not only for palliative care, but against that global benchmark, then the situation is, is just pitiful. There are really very few countries in the world that have what is required in opiate analgesics to be able to meet the medical needs of their populations. The barriers, there are several. The first, and we believe foremost, is what the literature calls opiophobia. And opiophobia happens to the global health system, happens to national health systems, um, happens to patients, families, physicians, and providers. It's an unwarranted concern for possible addiction related to appropriate medical use of opioid analgesics, the most basic of which, again, is oral immediately release, morphine. We also realized and looking at the literature, that the world has a very unbalanced approach to access to these medications. We are very skewed towards controlling the risk of non-medical or illicit use. 
And we've forgotten about the needs, particularly of the poor, for pain relief. And the example that I found most concerning is that when I looked at the SDG targets around health, there's one that's specific to controlling access to avoid illicit use, but we don't have anything specific about pain release or palliative care in the SDGs. It's implicitly rolled into universal health coverage, which it should be, but we're explicitly talking in our global health policy about limiting access for what's illicit, which is certainly a public health issue and a crisis, but we're not looking at that other side, which is the global pain crisis. And the people who are most at risk, as is almost always the case, are the poor. When I first saw figure one, Lisa had done the initial calculations of reshaping the surface of the countries of the world according to their availability to uh, morphine equivalents, it struck me that this is an incredibly neglected dimension of global health inequities. That map, you know, is the kind of map that one would see with uh, maternal mortality. You know, practically all maternal deaths are concentrated in poor countries. But it, this revealed a new dimension of global health inequity that I think had not been brought to the light. And it puts access to effective pain control uh, to alleviate uh, health-related human suffering in that same league of the most extremely inequitably distributed variables across the world. So I think this should be an awakening that access to, to morphine belongs in that category and it should mobilize the global health community to address this newly discovered dimension of injustice around the world. And just to paraphrase a very, I think, good formulation that Philly said just a while ago, we have tended in the policy debate, because some of these substances can lead to abuse, as we see with the opioid epidemic in the United States, but we have focused our policy attention on preventing excess instead of assuring access. And whereas there is some excess, and you see that in the map, where you see this totally out of proportion maps of the United States or Canada or, or, or Australia, you see the problems of access when basically in that global map, practically Africa disappears, India disappears, even China practically becomes negligible in terms of uh, when you resize their surface to their access to effective uh, pain control medicines like, like morphine equivalent. So it is a striking, I think we, we need a balanced approach where we certainly control the excessive use, but not at the expense of guaranteeing access for legitimate medical need of alleviating extreme pain. Our, our commission thought very carefully about the situation in the United States, which is clearly a public health crisis. There is an opioid epidemic, and many of our commissioners were, were very concerned about this. What we've tried to look at are what are the lessons learned um, for other countries around the world. There's no question that it is possible to achieve access to pain relief and palliative care without excess and leading to massive no amounts of illicit and non-medical use. The sort of lessons that we glean, which we think are very important, one is that no physician or nurse should graduate and receive their degree without basic training in palliative care and, and, and pain relief to be able to use these medicines effectively. Second, 
that no for-profit entity should be allowed to do any kind of direct marketing, obviously to patients, but in addition, no direct marketing to providers of these medicines and particularly not um, to physicians. Then the third is that we are, and this is one of our main recommendations, encouraging countries to start with universal access for medical need to inexpensive off-patent oral immediate release and injectable morphine. And once you have that, to turn to other um, ways of expanding the packet, some of which include opioid analgesics, such as extended release morphine or slow release morphine that are more expensive. But to start with the pieces that are really inexpensive and off-patent, where in fact what we're trying to achieve is aggregate demand and get more and better production of what is most inexpensive so there's better access for the poor. And those are some of the lessons that we learned from a careful look at what the literature and the analysis and the policy making around the situation in the United States is, I think, teaching the world. So moving on to the final section of your commission, where you discussed how health systems can actually be strengthened by integrating palliative care services. And you use quite a few country examples in panel 18 of where they've actually integrated palliative services and had this positive effect. So can you discuss what the main points are from this section and the opportunities available? So we have, I think, some very good examples of countries that are are moving forward in in a number of ways, Um, and we highlight these. For Mexico, we've highlighted in the regulatory front this very important move from only using sort of very archaic, very difficult to use um, paper prescribing to electronic prescribing, a huge move forward in, in 2015 and very innovative, which allows both for better monitoring of potential misuse by prescribers, but also for much better access for all. So that, that's an example of an important regulatory change. We also look at the Costa Rican case. Uh, this is a country that has basically achieved or very close to universal health coverage, but they embedded um, from the beginning access to palliative care into uh, their goal of universal health coverage. And so they have managed to have a network of clinics operating throughout the country that provide access at a level of care that is linked to a a tertiary hospital. Uganda, a low-income country where our numbers are 11% right now, um, capacity to manage palliative care need, which might sound low, but in Africa, that's actually very high, particularly in, in the very poor countries of Africa. So there's been huge moves forward in Uganda, and they are a model example of innovation. So what they've been doing is through hospices and NGOs insisting on and getting the the regulatory framework to be able to import morphine powder and then reconstitute that into liquid format to make sure that nurses can prescribe with appropriate training. And very interestingly, to have um, an inter-institutional working group, a committee with the government over a period of 15 to 20 years to keep moving forward on palliative care, particularly pain relief in their country. And that's a very good example because it's one of the recommendations that we have for the future for countries to set up this sort of uh, disciplinary interinstitutional committee that includes civil society, clinician experts, as well as government and linked to international organizations. And our other example 
where there's been tremendous moves forward is Kerala and India, and, and very much because of local advocacy, dedicated work. Well, I think, uh, you know, this is an illustration of the diagonal approach that we were talking about uh, previously, and it is an integrated approach where, where you actually move palliative care from the periphery right into the center. And although a lot of palliative care is end-of-life care, it actually permeates the entire health system. First of all, it, it pervades the entire life cycle, and it is connected to every stage of the continuum of care. So I, I think one first contribution is to think of palliative care not as this peripheral example of failure of, uh, you know, it's what we do when we don't have a treatment, but to get it much more integrated. There are needs for palliation associated with successful treatment and the side effects of, for example, chemotherapy in the treatment of cancer is, I think, a very visible example. And, and therefore, if we think of palliative care as a key component and we bring it center stage rather than at the margins where it has tended to be, then I think it then follows that discussion in health systems needs to be inclusive of palliative care. And conversely, that our proposals around palliative care need to be integrated with the rest of the health system. And that's why the title of this report alludes to universal health coverage, one of the targets uh, around the sustainable development goals related to health. Well, what we're saying is you cannot achieve that if you don't have effective access to palliative care as part of the integral, comprehensive approach to universal health coverage. Uh, so on, on panel 18, we actually organize the country experiences by the functions of the health system. And the main functions of any health system are the stewardship function. It's the fundamental public function of providing not just regulation, but also strategic direction to the health system. Then the financing function. So how do we, how do we mobilize and allocate the resources for palliative care as part of, of a comprehensive health system? The third is the, uh, the actual delivery of care. And again, it's the, the notion of integrating palliative interventions to the entire continuum of care. And then finally, the fourth function is resource generation. How do we produce the, the resources that are required for all the other functions to be performed? Obviously, a big part of that is human resources. So there are very specific recommendations on, on, on education and training. But other resources like information become very important, technological resources become also very, very important. So there's, you know, 10 lessons in that panel organized by the four functions of the health system stewardship, financing, delivery, and resource generation. That's the framework that, that uh, guides that part of the report. And I, I do think it's, it's a very integrated framework because it puts palliative care in contact with the rest of the health system. For the global health system, we need global financing facilities that can help to aggregate demand, but also assist in making sure that countries can achieve lowest possible international prices to close gaps in need. We know that it's not enough to palliate, and it's not an excuse for prevention and treatment. What we're trying to think about in terms of the global health system is whether or not institutions like the World Bank could help to facilitate a financing facility for NCD medicines associated with chronic and non-communicable diseases where palliative care and pain relief was, was really crucially embedded but was not the only aspect of what is trying to be achieved.
it's not just that for pain control and, palliative, and the rest of palliative care, we need strong health systems. It's also that if we strengthen that component of palliative care, that will then help to strengthen other aspects, including prevention and treatment. It's a two-way dialogue. Exactly in that line, we've been thinking that the place to begin is children because there's a possibility of really thinking diagonally and because the need is so clear. The numbers are just not huge because we're speaking about children. And we found one number that I found you know, very surprising, which is that it costs just over $1 million a year to provide immediately release oral morphine, morphine and injectable morphine, to all children in need in low-income countries. With all children in low-income countries, either at end of life or with life-threatening and life-limiting conditions that require um, that kind of pain relief. And $1 million is just tiny. Now, overall jumping, to close the whole gap, our estimate is $145 million which is less than the cost of a medium-sized hospital in the United States. We also looked at groups that really have been left out in natural disasters, uh, refugee situations, genocide. The last thing that people think about often is the need, part of health, to offer pain relief and palliative care. And again, not just for those who are at end of life, but also for this sort of pain and suffering that goes along with those kind of, of situations. So we're also suggesting that as part of the global health platforms, this should involve a number of institutions, including those that address humanitarian crises around the world where pain control and palliative care is just left out. I think this is one of the key findings, which is the way in which we have a huge problem, but it is a problem that is really within our reach financially to, to address. Because, you know, whereas, for example, the cost for children, a million dollars, it really is trivial. And the number of children, it, I mean, it's two and a half million of, of the 61 million deaths a year, uh, or the 61 million people a year that, that are suffering, have extreme suffering. But two and a half million children are in that category. That's a huge number of children. And yet you see that this particular aspect of pain control is really a, a trivial amount from a financial point of view. I think what we have here are regulatory failures and, and frankly, a moral failing to address a problem which disproportionately affects the most vulnerable and the poorest people around the world. Indeed, that figure was quite shocking. What do you think are the main things that you want people reading and listening to this podcast to take from your commission? So you have your five few messages that you've listed in panel one. And can you also state what you hope the impact of your commission will be? Our commissioners worked very hard to um, develop five key messages and associated recommendations that are obviously detailed and in-depth in our report. The first key message is that the alleviation of the burden of serious health-related suffering from life-threatening or life-limited conditions and those associated with the end of life is a global health and equity imperative. And this had really not been obvious in the literature before, that this is a global health priority and a priority for equity. Second key message is that universal access to an affordable, essential package of palliative care, including pain relief, can alleviate much of the inequitable and preventable burden of serious health-related suffering and therefore 
much of the inequity and that, that, that we see in, in global health. Third, that low- and middle-income countries can improve the welfare of poor people at really modest cost by publicly financing our proposed essential package of palliative care interventions and through full integration into universal health coverage. We really say that there can be no universal health coverage if the basic package that is palliative care is not included. Our fourth is that international and balanced collective action is essential to achieving universal coverage of palliative care and pain relief by facilitating effective access to essential medicines while implementing measures to prevent non-medical use. And five, better evidence and priority setting tools must be generated to adequately measure the global need for palliative care to abate serious health-related suffering, and to be able to implement effective policies and programs and to monitor progress towards alleviating this huge health burden in the world. And there, as we discussed earlier in the podcast, we are calling for a really significant um, research investment around developing new metrics that allow us to effectively value um, the alleviation of pain and suffering, as well as other aspects of health which are associated with mortality and morbidity. To me, the final big message is that, you know, we live in a world with a lot of problems, with a lot of examples of injustice being perpetrated against the most vulnerable and, and the poorest people in the planet. A lot of those problems are very complex, and we don't have a clear notion of how to address them. Here we have one example of a huge problem affecting 61 million people around the world every year and being one of the most extreme cases of injustice, which is the, the injustice of suffering, avoidable pain, and other forms of suffering. And it is one that doesn't cost a lot of money. This particular dimension of extreme health-related suffering can be fixed with less than the annual budget of a medium-sized hospital in the United States, of one medium-sized hospital in the United States. So it doesn't cost a lot of money to do it, and where we actually have a path to solve and, and address this inequity. So this is a, a call for action that I think goes beyond its health benefits that are huge. It really can provide the world much-needed optimism that we can actually act together to solve a common problem. And I think now that this evidence has come to the fore, thanks to publication by The Lancet, it would really be an incredible moral failure in our world to not act on this evidence. The evidence is clear. I think it's persuasive. I think there's a clear path forward. It's an affordable solution. I think we have all the ingredients to act and show that for this very important problem, we can act together and, and address a common injustice. So to me, that is the larger significance of this report, and I hope the report will be widely read and will lead to that kind of uh, effective, immediate action. It really is such an important commission that highlights all these global discrepancies and what can actually be done, like you've said, these solutions to this crisis that has been neglected. So thank you both again, Julio and Felicia for taking the time to speak to us. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. And do go have a look and read the commission that is online.